This is episode 72 with medical doctor, 224 marathoner, race director of the Freedoms Run Race Series in West Virginia, director of the Natural Running Center, and owner of Two Rivers Treads in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, Dr. Mark Kukitzella. Here we are again, everyone. I'm Jason Fitzgerald, your host and the head coach of Strength Running. I have an awesome show for you today that I'm super excited about because it's one of those conversations that has the potential, I think, to permanently alter the trajectory of your running career. If you can internalize these lessons and apply them to your training, I have no doubt that you're going to experience fewer injuries and faster finishing times. I know that you'll be stronger, more stable, more athletic, healthier, and will actually live a longer life. Now, look, I'll be the first to admit those are bold claims, but our guest today delivers. And the implications of this advice to your running career, health, and longevity are far-reaching. But before we get into my conversation with Dr. Mark Kukadzella, I want to thank SteadyMD for making this show possible. SteadyMD pairs you with a primary care doctor online, a doctor who really gets to know you listens to you, and has time for you. And not just any doctor, a doctor who is a fellow runner and who really understands training and the demands that that puts on your body. So if you're dealing with an injury or are fearing the early warning signs of overtraining, your doctor is available via phone, text, and video chat anytime. So go on over to steadymd.com strengthrunning to learn more and reserve your spot. For athletes who need true preventive care tailored to your medical needs and lifestyle, learn more at steadymd.com slash strengthrunning for all the details. All right, let's talk more about our guest, Dr. Mark Kukadzella. He's a professor at West Virginia University School of Medicine and a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Air Force Reservists. He designed the U.S. Air Force Efficient Running Project and has presented running workshops on over 50 military bases. Dr. Kukadzella has been a national-level master's runner, completed more than 100 marathon and ultra-marathon races, and is a two-time winner of the Air Force Marathon. He's the race director of Freedom's Run Race Series in West Virginia, director of the Natural Running Center, and the owner of Two River Treads, a center for natural running and walking in his hometown of Shepherdston, West Virginia. Needless to say, my friends, this guy knows his stuff, and I am thrilled to feature this evidence-based, science-backed, experience-confirming conversation with you today. Please welcome our guest, Dr. Mark Kukadzella. Mark, welcome to the show, and thank you for being here today. Well, Jason, it's a privilege. Thank you for having me on. Yes, I'm excited about this. You have a new book out called Run for Your Life, How to Run, Walk, and Move Without Pain or Injury and Achieve a Sense of Well-Being and Joy. Well, sign me up. That sounds pretty much like what every runner wants. So I'm excited to dive in with you today. Let's start with the topic of running form, something that I'm honestly a little hesitant to teach because, you know, all of our mechanics are unique. Uh, sometimes changing your form can actually result in lower efficiency and some form changes can then cause other types of problems, even injuries. So uh, I think this is a good topic for, for us to get started with. Uh, can you explain just what you think good running form uh, is? Yeah, and that's a great question, Jason. And I'm like, you, I'm not 
you know, one to jump in and start messing with people and changing them. But certainly anyone who's who's a runner knows there is some basic skill to runners. So I, I kind of put people, Jason, in three categories. And I own a small running re- retail. We've been around for nine years now. It's in a small town in West Virginia, Ranson, West Virginia. So we see the whole spectrum. So a beginning runner just needs to know the basics, you know, not to hurt themselves. So we have a, just a, this wonderful device, Jason. It's called a true form runner. It's a slightly curved treadmill, which makes it impossible to be off balance and impossible to overstride. So it kind of forces you to learn how to how to run slow ridiculously well, <laughs> or learn how to run ridiculously slow well. You know, if, it's like going to the, to the golf range, and if you can't pick up, you know, an easy seven iron blade and just be able to reproduce that easy swing and hit it down the middle, you probably shouldn't be picking up a big Bertha club. So just that basic skill. And a lot of new runners really haven't developed that. They've been bound to chairs, you know, horribly constrictive, stiff shoes. Their feet are weak. They don't have any spring in their step. You know, that's that springy fascia that all kids have. So there's some really simple things that we can kind of teach them. They don't have balance. You know, they're stooped forward. or They're in the back seat, so to speak. That's when they kind of lean back running. So I just want to teach them balance, rhythm, relax, learn how to run slow well. And that always gives you a good response, you know, and you probably know how it is, Jason, even as an experienced runner. If you go out on just a super easy recovery day, you always feel better when you come back in the door. And that's how I want a new runner to experience running. So if they feel better when they get back, you know, than when they went out the door, they've done the right thing. You know, if you have a new runner and they're just hating life and then when they get back they're all sore and can't run the next day that's not they're not going to stay in the sport you know that's not kind of in their mind you know something that once makes them want to go out and do it again so that's probably 70 percent of the people we see you know these are people coming to couch to 5k programs you know they're people in middle age you know they've been told by their doctors you know you need to lose weight or you got diabetes or something you know you need to get out the door their kids are gone and then there's also a group that I see quite a bit of too, Jason. These are the injured. You know, so if you're running well 20 years uninjured, doing whatever it is, even if it looks kind of wonky, I'm, I'm not going to mess with you at all. Yeah, you're completely right because people compensate in all these ways that are unique to them. So if everything's dialed in and going well, leave that group alone. But if someone comes in with an injury, certainly a repetitive stress injury, we want to look at the whole you know, their whole program, you know, are they just running too much? You know, they don't know how to take easy days. They're just doing chronic cardio every day and pounding themselves every day and doing it on four hours of sleep. That may have nothing with form. But if they're having a repetitive stress injury that seems to turn up in the same place again and again, you know, we need to try to go root cause and figure out what they're doing. And again, that's where like a true form runner can help. Video analysis can help. But you have to be really cautious with cameras because they can show you what's called kinematics, which is movement, but they can't tell you forces. So we have no idea, you know, their loading rates. So people touch on the heel with perfect running form. So, you know, I think we've gotten beyond that argument that you should land in one specific way. You know, you should land on the ball of your foot. You should land on your heel. You know, because human variability is, is, is extreme and it's all over the place. The best runners actually have the most variability in their stride. You know, for example, Jason and many of y'all out there probably watch some of these elite marathoners. You know, at mile seven, you know, if you watch the pack, and I've got some videos of this, and it's fascinating. They're all landing on their heels. And then, you know, your form gurus out there will say, well, they're all heel striking. And it's like, no, no, this is mile seven. They're touching and rolling. You know, they're just trying to save as much energy as possible. But then you look at that same 
you know, guy or lady at mile 25, you know, and a hundred thousand bucks on the line and they tend to be up on the ball of their foot, at least the ones that are left in the race. So you, you have to be really careful watching with a camera and trying to make change. Now you can do some simple measurements, you know, things like hip extension. Most runners don't get their leg behind them at all and they reach way forward out. And if their leg is like a check mark, you know, meaning knee is locked, you know, an ankle is in that kind of check position, fully locked out, you know, and the ground thuds when they hit it, you, you can make a general assumption that they're probably overstriding, meaning they, they're setting up a lot of braking forces. Now, if they're touching with their heel, with their uh, lower leg, meaning their shin perpendicular to the ground, and it's nice and soft and nice rhythmic cadence, it's probably all fine. Now, another group, and I don't mess much with this group, but I know if you went to you know, some of the higher end performance gyms and certainly Nike Oregon project and the, you know, sub two hour project. Now, if you're looking for performance, then that's another area and that's where you have to be careful. And and I think folks have read about stories like Dathan Ritzenhein, you know, they try to tweak this or that and he ends up getting hurt, but he's putting 140 miles a week. So these people are looking for marginal gains, you know, maybe a 1% gain. So they're willing to take some risk. But that being said, Jason, one of the most amazing little form tools that we've used for all of those kind of scenarios, new runners, hurt runners, performance runners, is this little strap we have. It's a like a little uh, bungee that kind of attaches almost like a harness, kind of puts your thumbs up against your chest. And uh, so one of the things you can think about, if your arm is forward, your leg always follows your arm. So if you're throwing your arm way forward, your, your foot's going to strike way out in, ahead. And if you watch a video of like Kipchoge running and you see, or any Ethiopian runner or the Kenyans, their hands are kind of just right around their chest area and they don't move that much. And their arms drive back, you know, whether they're running easy or running fast. So you, you almost see that kind of bungee right there. So we throw these little straps on people and immediately it changes what they do. And I think that's a very safe place to go you know, with any level of runner, you know, I can send you a little picture of what that is. It's a 36 inch rubber band that we get at Home Depot for like a buck 99. Oh, that's interesting. I've, I've never heard of that strategy. If you could send me a picture, that'd be really interesting. I'd love to include it with the blog post around this episode. So it sounds to me, Mark, that, you know, when it comes to good running form, proper running form, efficient running form, however you really want to describe it, it's that there's probably some tried and true principles, but there is a lot of variability. And, you know, I, I really appreciate you saying, you know, the fact that all these elite marathoners are heel striking early in the race. You know, it just reminds me of all this discussion about foot strike after Born to Run came out, you know, roughly 2009, 2010. And, you know, everyone started talking about how it was beneficial to land in a neutral foot stance or with your foot, you know, more on the ball of your foot or right kind of in the midfoot area. But everyone pointed to Meb Keflazigi, Boston Marathon winner when he was, uh, I think he was 38 or 39 years old, and he has a heel strike. And this great debate and ensued. And I, I think... One of the lessons to come from that debate is that not all heel strikes are made equal. There is the really aggressive, overstriding, heel-smashing variety of heel strike, and we certainly want to avoid that. But, you know, I think when you're talking about this very light, 
heel kissing the ground very quickly before you roll onto the majority of your foot. You know, I think that's been called a proprioceptive heel strike. You're touching the ground with your heel, but you're not putting all your weight down on the heel. And that is such a crucial difference. And and I'm really glad that you brought that up. Now, do you recommend that only injured runners should go out there and actively try to change their form when they're out running? I think, again, like Jason, everything depends. So if you're 20 or 30 and your mechanics are just horrible, meaning you are truly overstriding, you know, a lot of stress in your joints, you're not using your foot like a spring, and you're not hurt yet, you know, the worst running injuries I see, unfortunately, are the ones that actually take people out of the game for life. So the the tissues in our body that, and I think this is important for your listeners to understand, because we've all had it, you know, so if we have a little tweak in our Achilles, you know, we feel that tendinosis, that's called fascia, all that connective tissue is fascia. And almost all the overuse running injuries, these ones we get early in life are fasciosis, you know, Achilles, you know, you've got your plantar fascia, you know, your little upper hamstring, you know, that's not the muscle belly, it's the connective tissue. And that tissue is highly wired with neuroreceptors and proprioceptors, we feel it, right? But joints don't, feel pain until late in the game. So I'll have people come into me. I'm a doc. You know, so I see all these people in clinic and can order x-rays and do all that, MRI scans. But they'll come to you and say, gosh, my, my knee hurts a little bit now, doc. And they're 50. You know, I'm 51. So they're folks my age. And you do an x-ray of their knee and there's nothing left. You know, their cartilage is gone. Their hip is gone. And it's like, whoa, you know, this is not like ice this down, do a little stretching. That's real. And they never felt it. You know, they just didn't because the joints really are late to feel pain. So I think if someone wants to run for their life, you know, not a a short high school career, but for their life, they should try to optimize just the human body's form, you know, and how we're designed. Running is a mass spring mechanism. So we need to run with spring, not with, you know, muscle power and strength. You know, our foot and Achilles, our lower leg is is a massive shock absorber. You know, just jump rope. That should not take energy. It should be nice, light, tap, 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 tap. And that's how the best runners run, whether they're running fast or slow. And that really, the, the foundation of the foot is so critical. I always start with the foot because if the foot is not behaving like a spring, it's hard to fix anything else because it all starts there. You know, it's hard to run with proper form if your foot's not acting like a spring because you're going to have to work around it some other way. But yeah, so I think everyone should try to, you know, optimize what they're doing if they want to have longevity in the sport. And I think that goes without saying for almost any sport, you know, if you're a skier, a climber, you know, these are just basic principles. You know, they're not hard guidelines or hard protocols. These are just simple, simple things that most people who have longevity in the sport, you know, just apply for their whole lives. Can we talk about some of those guidelines, some of those principles that you think everyone should work on when it comes to the, our form? Yeah, so one is I think, you know, go back to Lydiard, you know, and he went through a whole progression into a season, you know, so he really worked on that just aerobic development. So I think most of us develop just this efficient, you know, just how our bodies move economically because, you know, when our heart rates are low and we're just kind of gliding over the ground, not into the ground, that's good. And that's building mitochondria. That's building capillaries. That's good for fitness. And you're never sore. So all of us just from running year and year after year develop that to some degree, especially if we have less uh, shoe on our feet. When we have a big interface between our foot and the ground, it's easy to get sloppy. 
But when you're going out and just running easy, running with your dog, pure aerobic pace, conversational pace, that's the time to minimize your shoe a little bit because you can get away with less. You know, your foot's got to do a little more of the work. Your shoe can't. So without needing to focus on it, it's kind of automatic training. It's like invisible training. And then, you know, what Lydia did through the years is, you know, he had his runners go through um, kind of a period in their training called hill training before they would hit the track. And that was, you know, now there's this whole movement to plyometrics, you know, all the strength training. But what he was doing there with body weight type of bounding and hill running is what a lot of people now are doing in just different formats. But they would pick, you know, these different type of routes and they would bound up the hill. They'd run fast down the hill. You know, there were the Lydiard hill loops. You know, they would do hill skips, hill bounds. You know, it's like basically single leg plyometrics. You know, which I like to do now, you know, after almost every run, I'll do a drill called a single leg run. You know, I'll take run like 10 steps on one leg, 10 steps on the other leg, because that forces you to do everything correctly. You can't overstride. You have to stabilize your forces. You have to spring off the ground. You know, I'll do it on a golf course someplace, you know, nice and soft. You know, you could do it on a soft track. Yeah, so these are, are timeless drills, Jason, that, that Lydiard and coaches have done, you know, Percy Cerruti through the the history of coaching, they tend to be a lot of the plyometrics, a lot of the bounding type of drills that translates to strength training. Now people are in gyms doing uh, box jumps and different, you know, light hopping plyometrics with ladders. So that those things really, I think, complement and teach your form more so than even going out and thinking about how you're going to run because they develop the hardware, meaning the structure, the tissue, the strength to be able to run correctly. You know, if you don't have the strength to bounce on one leg, it's going to be very hard for you to run distance properly because you're going to fatigue and things are going to start to get sloppy and break down. So that's a, a little bit. I hope that answered the, the question about. Yeah, no, I, Mark, I think this is fascinating because, you know, I just asked you, what are some of those guidelines or principles of good running form? And you didn't talk about cadence. You didn't talk about where the foot lands in relation to the rest of your body. You didn't talk about foot strike. You talked about training. And, you know, I've always struggled with the 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 teaching of running form because I've always believed that good running form is the result of really good training. If you are running a lot of miles easy at the at an appropriate easy pace, if you are doing strength training, drills, plyometrics, if you are running faster workouts and there's a variety of speeds in your training, including, you know, potentially sprinting. Yeah, sprinting is huge. Strides, you know, at the end of our runs, I do that every day too. You know, 40 to 60 meters, just bare feet on the grass. Exactly. I love barefoot strides are one of my favorite things to do. I think they're just so fundamental. And, you know, rather than going out there and just telling a runner, okay, let's try to get your cadence up to, you know, over 170 steps a minute, or, you know, let's really try to, you know, back off on running on your tippy toes and try to have a more neutral stance. Instead, what we're doing is let's structure your training in a way that's going to improve your running form without you even having to think about it too much. It's just like you said, it's building the hardware to then go, be able to go out there and run well and have the strength to do it and have you know the resilience to actually have that really effective, efficient form. Yeah, people have overthought this way too much, you know, and it's kind of comes around to the simplicity the more you think about it, Jason. So, 
you know, I mean, people are afraid to take their shoes off. So we, I teach, I'm in the military now for, gosh, like eight years now, I've traveled around the bases. They all have to pass a fitness test. And no kidding, they hate to run. If you go to a group of 100 military members and you ask how many like running, and there's usually like one kid in the back who's on the cross country team raised their hand and everyone kind of snarls at that person. But they all hate it because they just pound themselves into the ground. So we take their shoes off and we teach, and, and this is this term comes from Dr. Hiro Tanaka over in Japan. He's the head of exercise physiology at University of Fukuoka and ended up running like a 238 marathon at age 50. So, so pretty amazing athlete too. But he calls it slow jogging, and it's doing this super easy slow jogging, you know, with, with minimal shoe, but it's that nice, soft, rhythmic motion. I'll send you a video of that. But what's crazy about that is when you do, you know, versus it's slower than a walk. It's just teaching them basically how to interface with the ground, how to land. And these are people that hate to run. And you'll jog super slow around a track, probably like 14 minutes a mile, something like super, super slow. They all tend to fall on the same rhythm. But when you look at their faces, they are like smiling and laughing. And it's like these are the people that hate to run. So that's how you start with these folks is like, look. This is where you need to start, right? This does not hurt. Your back isn't hurting. Your knees and hips don't hurt. You know, you're not getting acidotic at the 200-meter mark of a six-lap PT test. They all have to pass a fitness test. You know, so running to them is actually non-negotiable in, in their lives. So, you know, they, they want to learn it, but that's how we start with these folks. You know, they have no skill of running, hate running. And we're trying to make it fun and make them want to come back and do it the next day. But, yeah, take your shoes off and just run ridiculously slow. And you, you can't overstride because you'll leave skin on the ground. So it's, <laughs> you sure people will. are afraid to do it. It's like we all did it as kids. People are, like, terrified to go run 50 meters barefoot. And it's interesting you mentioned uh, the military folks. I've started writing a lot of uh, training plans for folks in the military who want to pass their fitness test. And I think I think the Air Force is one and a half miles. I think the Army is two miles. Yeah. But regardless, you're you're absolutely right. Most of these folks, uh, they're not runners, you know, by by trade. They, they they don't have a history of competing on a team or anything like that. Uh, and the way that they structure their running without really knowing too much about it is is just like that they're they're constantly out there trying to run as hard as they can uh but giving these these runners that base of just easy aerobic running really helps take care of uh not only i think the injury issues for a big chunk of these runners but also the performance side of things you know they actually get a lot faster when they start slowing down and just do a little bit more running but at a very easy pace now i want to touch base on minimalist running, barefoot running, because we've mentioned it a couple times now. And, you know, I, I completely agree that it is a very valuable way of reinforcing good running form and building strength. Let's talk a little bit more about this. How, how much of your own mileage do you run barefoot? And what's the, what's the main reason uh, that you do any barefoot running? Yeah, so Jason, it's summer now. And I would say, unless I'm on a trail, you know, which is the reason they made shoes, <laughs> you know, I, probably 70% of my running is barefoot, either on smooth road or grass. I have a golf course near me and they're kind enough if it's before golfing time, you know, six in the morning, 
They don't mind if I'm out. I'm in rural West Virginia, so they don't have gates around. You live like near Denver Country Club. I think they would shoot you if you know some <laughs> they might. barefoot guy in a tie dye was out there running on the golf course. <laughs> so no, but here I'm like in a rural area. So I mean, to me, it's just it's fun, right? Like the proprioception, meaning when you're just your feet hit the ground, and it's it's crazy how when you come back from a barefoot run, there's something magical about how that resets everything because your body just kind of self-tunes that way you know you wake up and something's a little bit stiff a little bit tweaky and you just go out and you run barefoot things kind of settle themselves out and I think that when I really kind of just figured that reset thing out barefoot because you can't run hard barefoot it it slows you down I mean it just you you can't go pound yourself your feet will say no I've done unless you're just a knucklehead type a you know and sometimes people I think that's some of the injuries, you know, injuries aren't caused by barefoot running, you know, running doesn't cause the injuries, right? People hurt themselves. It's not the running that does it. But um, it was, gosh, it may have been the Boston Marathon, maybe about seven or eight years ago. You know, I ran that in shoes, you know, I wouldn't run that thing barefoot. I wore, I ran, I wore, in, wore sandals uh, and five fingers at Boston, but I wouldn't do it completely barefoot. But I was a little bit sore the next morning. It was a Tuesday morning. It was a beautiful day, and I had a late flight out Tuesday. You know, you wake up, and everything is just stiff. And it, I said, let me just go out and just do a super, super easy jog. And I just didn't feel like putting shoes on. And Calm Ave is, like, super smooth. And I ended up running, like, an hour super slow. You know, probably covered, like, three miles <laughs> or something. But I came back, and it was, it was fine. You know, I could walk through the airport and actually could go run the next day. But something about that easy barefoot, you know, probably got fluid into my tissues, blood into my tissues, you know, helped the fascia, which were all sticky. You know, when we're sore, it's fascia that's just inflamed and it just needs to move. You know, it needs to glide again. But it just did a lot of good, you know, even at that super slow pace. And that was convincing to me, at least, that there's something else other than, you know, the stuff you read about on the blogs or something kind of mystical. The human body is amazing. I mean, I'm a doc. We've yet to begin to discover human biology and all the different ways we're designed and, and why. So I'm, I'm very humble in what I say I know and don't know because there's so much we don't know. So you have to listen to your own intuition. If it feels good and gives you a good response, good. You know, just like a massage or something. If it feels good and gives you a good massage, do it. If it's not giving you a good response and you're sore for three days after a massage, for some reason that's not putting good into you. You know, whether it's an ice bath or hot tub, you know, if it's not giving you a good response, just stop doing it. You know, we all have different, you know, biologic and genetic variabilities to recovery techniques. Now, Mark, you, you've been doing some barefoot running for quite a while. What would you say to the person who's either never done any barefoot running or has only worn, you know, maybe some minimalist shoes for a tiny fraction of either their, you know, day-to-day life or their running? Is this a good candidate for running a lot barefoot? Because I, I admittedly am very hesitant to kind of tell the average runner to go out there and run an hour barefoot because I, you know, I, I think the barefoot running movement, I guess we can call it, that, that's been popularized over the last 10 years or so, I think it's been a boon to podiatrists. And I think we need to be really careful with how much barefoot running people are doing and you know how quickly they transition to barefoot running. So how do you think about that? I think it's all, it's a great question. It's all good common sense. So I think the running shoe industry has been a boon to podiatrists. <laughs> 
you know, I'll agree with that every one too. barefoot runner that makes the news, you know, going to any podiatry office and they're loaded with people with, you know, rigid, stiff motion control shoes. Because if you decommission the foot early in life, meaning you brace it, you support it. I mean, there's no such thing as a handiatrist. I mean, they don't exist. You know, we, the only reason we have someone who specializes in hands is if you have a bad day with a kitchen knife, you know, and you actually have trauma to your hand. But there's a podiatrist on every street corner. So that tells us something. You know, what are we doing with our feet that's different than the rest of our body? You know, I, I'm 51, but when I was, I started running in 1980, I, I don't remember all of this podiatry stuff. I mean, I, I love the podiatrists. They're doing good things, you know, for a lot of people, but we should not need so many of them. Um, I think ha- what you wear walking is probably more important than what you run in, you know, unless you're a professional runner. You know, myself, for example, I do 12-hour hospital shifts. You know, I'm on my feet walking way more than I'm running. So how you're strengthening your feet all day translates to your running. So if your foot's in kind of a stiff, rigid shoe that points – I had my feet operated on in year 2000, and you know, knock on wood, that was my last running injury – because at that point, you know, I, I, my big toe was bent in at about 40 degrees. It looked like a track spike because that's what I wore, you know, I on track and, you know, squeezed into all these skinny shoes. You know, I thought that was the way it was. But I knew pretty early in my medical life that, um, you know, half of what we've learned in med school is wrong. We just don't know what half it is. So when I recovered from that surgery, I made it a priority to learn about the foot and running because I missed it. My dog missed it. And uh, you live in Denver. I lived in Washington Park. Then Jason, my dog, would used to go out for four laps of the park with me every day. And about two months after the surgery, my poor dog looked forlorn. So I had to figure out how to run again. And I started studying all this stuff. This was before Born to Run, you know, before any of this, before Five Fingers. And I was running for Brooks Sports at the time. I had a sponsorship with them. And this uh, gentleman named Trip Allen, who was their lead development guy, you know, he was the, the engineer of the shoes, came over from Nike and worked under Bowerman. And, and he was a true believer that the, the movement of getting away from these soft flats was wrong. You know, was, uh, he just knew that that was wrong. So he had a few little pilot projects going on, and he was sending me these cutoff shoes, basically like a flat shoe, you know, like a zero drop. I didn't know that term. It wasn't in parlance yet. But immediately I, I was like, wow, that makes sense. You know, he explained all the engineering to me and uh, – about why and you know he was a a biomedical engineer you know by trade so he just knew his stuff and that opened my eyes I started running in these you know you could call them minimal shoes I don't think that term was developed either but it made a huge difference I was like wow this works you know I'm working on my form I'm never sore you know and and then you keep then Vibram and all the Dan Lieberman articles came out which brought more and Born to Run you know brought more awareness to it and of course people you know, your, your comment there, I would never recommend anyone go out and run 10 miles in their bare feet. I would say 100% spot on. You know, the first barefoot run for anyone should be to, to your mailbox and back. And I think, too, I think an important point for your listeners is it's all about the texture of the surface. So I'm trying to think in Denver, the smooth road. So if you have a really gritty road, that's not going to be a good texture to run barefoot. Um, so soft, smooth grass, a beach, or smooth road, or concrete. I think the best uh, surface to learn how to run barefoot is actually smooth, hard pavement, because the same principles apply to 
soft grass as a shoe like you could or soft sand you know you could run barefoot in some soft grass and completely overstride but you know you're going to kind of sink and the ground's going to absorb it but if you run on the pavement you know no more than your body can tolerate your first run will be to the mailbox and back but when i started running barefoot i would carry my shoes you know so i'd go maybe a quarter mile put my shoes on take my shoes off and the, the only reason and this is just another old story, but like, why in the hell did I decide to do this? And like, it was 2012. I had to give a talk at the Boston Marathon at one of the medical conferences. And my two colleagues giving the talk, were, one was Professor Lieberman, you know, who wrote the Nature article about the Kenyans and the shoes and uh, shod versus unshod and the movement patterns. And the other was Irene Davis, who was probably the leads, uh, physical, lead physical therapy researcher on running injuries and minimal running. She'd all over Born to Run. That's who, who Chris McDougall went to to get all of his, his evaluations. So they were given all the science, but they wanted me to come in to give the practical part of minimal running and barefoot, specifically barefoot. And this is about four months before that conference. And I humbly said, I, well, I don't run barefoot. I run in these minimal shoes. And they wanted me to come give that part of the talk anyway. So I, I figured if I want, was going to be legit to give this talk, I had to learn about barefoot running. And then I started taking my shoes off and haven't turned back since. But it's fun. I mean, I think if you, there's no reason people have to do it, but there's no reason not to try it. You know, it's, it's fun. I mean, I think I'll just leave it at that. If you don't like it, don't. But most people who, like, get into it, they're like, wow, this is great. You know, I feel like a kid again. And it empowers them because they don't, they, they don't need shoes anymore. And I do think as a coach that – if we can inject a little bit more fun into our training, yeah. then that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Now, one of the things I want to ask you about, Mark, is the fact that, you know, I think a lot of people, particularly, you know, older, middle-aged recreational runners who are just getting started with running, maybe they don't have a background in, in sports, you know, these are folks who have spent the majority of their lives in shoes and potentially very restrictive shoes, whether that's high heels, dress shoes, uh, other types of professional shoes for work. Does that kind of pose additional problems or risk for these folks who want to do a little bit of barefoot running? Huge risk. I own a running shoe store and in my store we have, it's called a plantar pressure plate. We're probably the only running shoe store that has one of these things. You know, they got it from the UK, you know, there's like a $10,000 piece of equipment, but it maps when you stand on this, it maps the pressure of different areas of your foot. And I, I'll look at people's feet, and they have no intrinsic muscle strength. You know, we have four layers of muscles in the arch of our foot. And then the tib posterior supports that arch. So if you have no muscle strength and your toes are up in the air, you know, so your most shoes now have what, what's called toe spring, Jason. Like, so it's kind of ramped up. You see that when the toes kind of curve up. So the foot's designed to have those toes flat. Like if, if you still have the picture of your baby foot footprint, you know, from the hospital, you know, it's this big wide footprint with the toes out. And uh, it's like that should be a normal foot, you know, whether you're one year old or 80 years old. So we kind of look at the foot. And if the foot is completely weak and dysfunctional, they can't stand on one foot, the arch is collapsed, we'll give them exercises to try to reshape that, to try to restrict, just like your hand, you know, if you had been in a cast for, I think, even a month if you've ever had to immobilize your hand or forearm. And like, everything just atrophies. So this is what I see with a lot of people's feet. It's atrophied. So we get them. It's safe to put people in a shoe during work and walking 
that allows them to train their foot gradually. So I don't tell these folks to go run right away in a five finger minimal shoe, but certainly if they're in a restrictive, stiff, elevated heel, pointy toe dress shoe, they're never going to get out of their running injury if they keep banging their foot up every day like that on 12 hour shifts, you know, on their day job. So get them. And luckily now, Jason, there's so many good lifestyle shoes that are anatomically correct, you know, wide toe boxes, flexible, you know, level heel to toe, you know, just let your foot do what it's supposed to do. So get people in a lifestyle shoe first, you know, that's appropriate for their job. You know, corporate, there's a uh, Vivo Barefoot makes very good dress shoes, you know, and if you're not super corporate, you know, there's more casual shoes like Lems, a Hinshaw, you know, that just look good, right? You can, uh, Zero Shoes make some nice casual boots and shoes that you could wear pretty much anywhere but Wall Street to a job pair of khakis and you know even suit and tie you're gonna look good do that first before walk before you run right that's kind of how it goes <laughs> yeah you, you mentioned four brands can you talk can you just mention those again at the risk of this turning into an infomercial uh so that was vivo barefoot and yeah vivo barefoot was one of the early leaders in minimal shoes for everything you know and galahad clark uh from the clark shoe family Probably like we were, we were the first U.S. store to have an account with them. This is like 10 years ago. He was like the black sheep of the family. He was working with tennis players, and he noticed that when they were playing tennis barefoot, they would get rid of these injuries. So he started to develop these early barefoot shoes, and they were the first ones really to embrace the lifestyle shoe. And they're from the U.K., so they're like super stylish shoes. You know, they look great. You know, you wear them with anything. Um, another brand that's, that's out of uh, Czechoslovakia is Ahinsha. Uh, another really good brand, um, really wide. Uh, Lems is another really awesome lifestyle brand. They've been around about 10 years, LEMS. Uh, Zero Shoes, Steve Sashin, really good brand of lifestyle shoes. You know, highly recommend just going to their websites or going to our web website. We have links to all these shoes, tworiverstreads.com. You know, there's boots, lifestyle shoes, you know, not infomercialing my store, but at least they're all spelled out there. And I, I don't sell anything in my store I wouldn't put on my own feet you know same as if I were to open a food uh, restaurant I certainly wouldn't have sugar sweetened drinks in there they can go somewhere else and get them because I don't think they belong <laughs> in the human body you know I wouldn't put something bad on the human body just like don't put anything bad in the human body but yeah go you have to try things on and it's it's like the two-week test it's crazy if people have been wearing these horrible work shoes and just say okay for two weeks just Get out of that horrible work shoe. Wear this flatter shoe. You might be a little bit sore the first day, but they're just walking around. They're not running a 10-mile tempo run. And then in two weeks, they go try to put on their old dress shoe, and it's crazy. It's like your hips hurt, your back hurts. Your body starts to readjust, and your feet start to strengthen. But that's what would just try it, right? It's like barefoot running. Don't read 20 blog posts about it. Just try it. (laughs) Yeah. If something hurts, stop, you know? Don't be a knucklehead and, and you'll be good. <laughs> that, that sounds very similar to some of the advice I got from my college coach. Don't be a knucklehead when it comes to... Yeah, we're all knuckleheads. You know, I ran in college. That's why we all got hurt, right? There was no such thing <laughs> easy running. We just hurt ourselves every day. Yeah, that's right. Now, you know, I have, uh, I have a five-year-old, I have a three-year-old, and I have a 10-month-old. So... I'm really interested in shoes that are appropriate for kids because, you know, like you said before, 
how your foot develops from a young age is really important to how your foot functions then as an adult. And so I'll give a, a quick plug for uh, native footwear. They make really, uh, they're zero drop. They have a very- I'll have to check them out. Yeah, they zero drop. They have very wide toe box. The stack height is very minimal. In other words, they're very close to the ground. And my kids just wear them all day, every day. Uh, we're in the backyard. I tell them they don't have to wear shoes. And they absolutely love just the, um, you know, the, the minimal nature of those shoes. Really great for kids. Yeah, what you said there is so important, Jason. So shoes are not like a style item or a clothing item for a child. You know, I mean, it's not shoes are a medical intervention for a child. Because if you put your child in the wrong shoe, it shapes their foot incorrectly. And I can share the link. So on my book's website under resources, I wrote a textbook chapter for a, a large podiatry sports medicine textbook. Um, and it links to a 1904 article, or 1904-1908, by a guy named Hoffman when we were allowed to actually x-ray. They used to x-ray feet in shoe stores until we realized that probably wasn't a good idea, you know, all this radiation. But you saw what happened in four weeks to a child's foot when they were in a shoe that tapered the toe boxes. It actually changed the shape of the foot. So the thing, that wide toe box thing is critical, but I, I wrote a whole ch uh, textbook chapter referenced with everything that we've learned about children's footwear. And it all goes back to what you just described in about three sentences right there with what you've put on your kid's feet. So spot on. If you want the science background, read the article or just do what you did. There's a new company called Splay coming out, which I'm impressed with. They're not on the market yet, but they're going to bring the price down of these shoes into the 30s. You know, it's weird. Parents will hesitate to spend $50 on a pair of shoes that they wear every day, but they'll go spend 50 bucks on some sweater, you know, that they'll wear twice to church. But the shoe is not like a dress sweater. You know, this is really, and you know from your kids, right? If you put them in some horrible shoe, they'd look at you like, like it was punishment and they'd throw it away when you turned your head. Like the church shoes, you know, they, they kind of frown and put it on, but just don't do not do that. Really important. For some reason, my five-year-old is really into high heels and pointy shoes, and I just am like... Only you the know, church or something. Not every day. Well, she doesn't even own any, and my wife doesn't even wear these shoes. I don't wear any pointy shoes. I don't even know where she finds these ideas. I think some of her books just have pictures of little kids in these fancy they shoes. They and... they have a daughter, you know, and they're doing their dress up and, you know, in the basement putting on outfits, and that's all cool, but not to school. No. <laughs> now, one of the things we've been talking a lot about is um, kind of lifestyle issues that affect running. You know, there's restrictive shoes. Uh, you mentioned really briefly earlier uh, sitting down for really prolonged periods of time. Can you talk about the sitting issue? Because this is something that I think is starting to get a little bit more attention now. And the more I learn about it, the more I recognize how detrimental it is, not just to your general health, but also for your running form and your running performances oh, and, and how sitting affects your body and your athletic ambitions. How do you think about this issue and, and talk to runners about it? You can read, I have a whole chapter in the book on it. Um, I'm standing as we do this interview, I have a desk, it's by a company called Uplift, Uplift Desk, and I'm not paid by them in any way, I just like the desk, and there was one on closeout, you know, and I don't know if you can hear it, 
it's kind of going up and down now. It's kind of like a little motor. I hear that, sure. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it actually works. It's pretty slick, and my son helped me put it together in about 20 minutes. Um, so it's got a little, you know, I can stand on a pad, stand off the pad. But when we sit, several things happen. Certainly, you know, when we run, we want to use the glutes. You know, that's the engine room of running is the glutes. But when we sit all day, our glutes get overstretched. So think of like a piece of elastic that you've overstretched. You know, it's really lost all that property that because running is a spring mechanism. You need strength and you need spring. So you basically overstretch the primary mover and the muscles that get short. You know, it shouldn't be too hard to comprehend, but that, that eight hours of sitting with your hip flexors in a shortened position, when you try to run and stride out, you're going to have difficulty getting your leg behind you. So mix it up. We're not designed to stand all day either, you know, so your best position is your next position, so to say, but sit some, stand some, but just don't sit all day. You know, if you're going to sit, mix it up with some standing. You can, there's little little tricks. I hate the word hack because it's such a garbage term, but say you had to have a chair and um, without arms, you know, you have to sit in some meeting for two hours and you know, sit on the edge of the chair, you know, on say, say it's uh you got your left cheek there. So you're sitting on, on the left side of the chair. I'm sorry, you're sitting on the right side of the chair with your left cheek, but you could kind of have your right leg kind of extended out behind you, almost like in a little kneeling position. And no one even knows that you're sitting that way. So your right leg is extended, you know, you're sitting, you know, your left uh, hip is flexed switch it out so you don't even need to look wonky, you know, like standing in the back of the room or something. You, you see that happen a lot in lectures now, you know, where everyone just sits all day at conferences. You know, most of the ones that involve like the ancestral health or paleo community, you know, tend to travel in those circles. You know, you might have, you know, a quarter of the audience kind of squatting in the back watching your talk. And then I go to a mainstream medical conference, you know, and they're all slouched, checking their head forward, you know, it's just horrible body positions. You know, I think how you sit reflects how you stand and how you stand reflects how you land. So if you're sitting horribly and you expect to have good running form just by watching a couple videos, it's probably not going to work out in your favor. But yeah, just get up. Stand up desks are great. Just get one and you can you don't need a fancy one before I got this one. You know, my wife just finally got fed up of the shoe boxes all over the place. So for her uh, benefit, I got a real stand up desk. You know, I would just like stack my laptop on you know egg crates and just stuff that you know didn't look all proper in in the home you know so sometimes you just got to play by the rules so it seems like the real solution to this problem isn't the opposite of sitting which is standing it is a variety of positions is that really it just let's let's get an ergonomic chair let's get a standing desk let's get a a big you don't need to spend money on this stuff i mean if you want to great but you don't have to yeah, the standing desk might be the only thing that, you know, if you just want to have a good one, that might cost you a little bit. I have a Swiss ball, you know, that's my dinner table chair, you know, just mix it up, you know, just think of any, I mean, we are animals in nature, right, for, for some reason, and then we, we suffer now from all the diseases of captivity, you know, that's no different than other animals, you know, we sit, we eat junk, you know, we don't move, and we expect to medicate our way out of it, but that's just not true, and I witness it every day in the hospital is, you know, you can't medicate your way to health. So all of this stuff is just super basic, harmless, no risk, just move more, sit less. And, you know, the driving is the tough one, I think, Jason, like if people have like out here, we have people that drive two hours each way to Washington, D.C. to work. And then they have some government job where they have to sit in a cubicle. 
That's tough. So, I mean, ultimately, if they're just broken, they, they've got to like reassess their life and say, is my health or my job, you know, can I, it just doesn't work sometimes. You know, they don't have time to exercise. You know, their day is 16 hours, you know, car yeah, to car, you know, really from the home. I, I can't imagine doing yeah, something yeah, like it's, that. Yeah, it's not compatible with health. And, and it sounds like modern people are very similar to animals that are held in zoos because we're not living the way that we should be living. We're living this kind of uh, modern industrialized existence where we're sitting down all the time and we're just exposed to so uh, so much fewer movements and body positions that, you know, we, we develop the, the iPhone neck, you know, that, that hunched yeah, over look. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it, it's not good for our health, but it's terrible for our running. I mean, this is just, I mean, it's kind of silly to think about it, but it's its true, and maybe it does make you think. I mean, the only the only species that have obesity and these metabolic diseases are humans and animals fed by humans. You know, another, no other animal in nature has these problems, you know, unless we get involved. You know, we feed the cats kibble and they get diabetes, and then, you know, wise veterinarians put them on what's called the catkins diet, you know, which is basically give them meat, right? They're cats. That's what they're designed to eat. They're not designed to eat breakfast cereal, you know, but it's it, just think back to these basic principles of how we got here. But we're, you know, we're screwing up ourselves, our future generation by all these diseases. We can't afford it. You know, no one can afford their health care now. And that's why we're in this mess. Well, this has been really interesting to, for me, Mark, uh, learning more about kind of a I, I want to say a, a simplified look at how we can get more out of our running. And I, I don't mean, when I say simple, I, I do not mean that in any kind of negative connotation, um, because simple is not always easy. And uh, simplifying your running, your life, the the way in which you go about your day so that you're prioritizing your running and kind of giving yourself every advantage, everything from not sitting down all day to not drinking sugary drinks all day long to wearing shoes that allow your foot to move and uh, be in a, in a more natural position. These are all things that are going to make you feel better day to day. They're going to make you have better longevity, and I think they're going to improve your running. So uh, I think there's a lot to chew on. There's there's a lot to really digest from this episode. So thank you so much for you know really going into detail and in some of these some of these issues. Uh, and of course, there's a lot more in your book, Run for Your Life. If p- folks want to learn more about you and your work, where's the best place for us to find you online? Yeah, so you can actually. I just put up the website for the book. Finished it with a good friend of mine, Nicholas Pang, this weekend. It's runforyourlifebook.com. And uh, you can, we have a whole menu there of, that's going to be the compli- uh, kind of the companion to the audio book and the book where we talk about different exercises. But we have videos because you have to see them. You know, you see a still picture. We did some really good pictures, I think, but to actually see exercises, it's nice to have a video. So we linked all, we probably got, a, you know, 30, 40 videos of different exercises, assessments, drills, corrections, all that stuff. You know, you can dive into that. Um, has a lot of articles in there just about kind of history of, of all this minimal movement and, and, you know, myself and my stirs involvement with it. I have a website called Dr. Mark's Desk, which links to a blog I write called the Natural Running Center. So that's one worth checking out, naturalrunningcenter.com and drmarksdesk.com will link to all of that. 
also has, I, I love community work and my foundation um, through a race called Freedoms Run. I, I'm a race director and we started races out here 10 years ago in West Virginia to raise money and awareness for the things we've talked about today, really this lack of fitness, you know, poor health. Um, so we wanted to build a, a little running trail in every elementary school in the county. And we've built about 12 now. And that's so they can go out and just run, right? You know, no structure, no nothing. You know, they're doing this in the UK through a program called the Daily Mile. You know, you don't need a gym teacher. You don't need gym clothes. It's, it's just 15 minutes of activity. Open a door. And, and they need a, the little paths are nice, you know, because if it's wet and it's muddy, they, you know, the teachers will be hesitant to send them out. But if they have a little trail, you know, they can go on that. So that's that's worth checking out, too. So our race is called Freedom's Run. So if you're out in the mid-Atlantic area, come run that. It's October 6th. It goes through four national parks. It's an old school race. All proceeds go to the nonprofit. There's no corporate stuff, and it's kind of old small town type of race. You know, you could park, you know, two minutes from the start, walk to the start, have a beer at the end. You know, and uh, we have over 40 states come to that race. So those are the key. Bob, purchase the book. You know, I, I think I've put four years, and I finally got it done. You know, it's hard to write books when you're busy. So I'm I'm pleased with how it turned out. You know, it's not perfect. Though things in the book will change, but for a first go. I think everyone, if you got something out of this conversation today and you want to learn more, you know, just page through the book then pass it on to someone else. You know, it's it's all good. Well, I'm super stoked to to check it out. Uh, yeah, I'll, it, it I'll looks... send you one. They just, just got the okay that I can do that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's general public is about September 18th that you can get it on Amazon and all the usual sites. But they have some advanced copies now I can send out. Well, that'd be wonderful. Uh, I actually went to runforyourlifebook.com, and I'm just checking out all the different resources and videos you have, and I think you have just ruined my productivity for the rest of the day. So uh, <laughs> thanks a lot, Mark. There's some barefoot running stuff in, on there. <laughs> yes, there is. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for well, lending your expertise and your time. Maybe when I'm out there again, we'll do a little loop around City Park and Wash Park, my old stomping grounds. Yeah, well, let me know. I've got some great loops around here that I'm sure are, you're no stranger to. Yeah, it's a wonderful city. I miss it. <laughs> that sure is. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Okay, Jason. Have a good one. Bye. All right. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Dr. Mark Kukizela. His decades of running, medical expertise, and experience working with the U.S. military has given him a unique and powerful perspective on what it takes not only to run fast, but to do so healthfully and with a smile on your face. I hope that you take a few nuggets of wisdom from this episode and apply it to your running. There's certainly enough to go around. And if you found something particularly helpful for you, I'm curious, shoot me a line. My email is support at strengthrunning.com and let me know how it worked out for you. Finally, another big thanks to our sponsor, Strength Running is an official partner of Steady MD, which is led by sub three marathoner, Dr. Josh Emder. The goal is to give you a personal doctor online that's just for runners to help you stay fit, healthy, injury-free, and competitive. The best part? There's no co-pays, no waiting rooms or surprise bills. Instead, you'll get same-day responses from a doctor who's there for you 24-7. If you've ever seen a doctor, or a PT for that matter, who doesn't have any experience with runners, then you just know how valuable it is for a hard-charging athlete to have a doctor who gets you and who understands your running goals. This is priceless. So go on over to steadymd.com slash strengthrunning to see if there are spots left and how you can benefit from having a primary care physician who's also a runner. 
That's steadymd.com slash running to see all the details. Thanks again, everyone. I appreciate you being here and I hope we'll talk soon.